and Peace, a podcast by the International Crisis Group. Welcome back to War and Peace, a podcast of the International Crisis Group. I'm your host, Olga Olaker, speaking to you from Brussels. And I'm your other host, Alyssa Jobson, also in Brussels, and as you can probably tell, with quite a heavy cold. Today, for our final episode of 2023, we are talking about Russia's response to the war between Israel and Hamas, its growing engagement with the Middle East, and its engagement with other parts of the world that aren't Europe, the United States, or former Soviet countries in that context. Since the Hamas attacks on Israel that took place on October 7th, 2023, we've seen a new war in Gaza, which continues uh, to this day. Russia has sought to benefit from the escalation. One clear advantage for Moscow is that the new fighting has drawn a good bit of the global media attention and some of the leadership attention away from its continuing war on Ukraine. The war has also highlighted and deepened frustration in much of the world with the United States and uh, with America's European allies, which, uh, to varying degrees, but generally, have supported Israel though they've also criticized its conduct and expressed a great deal of concern about the ever-rising civilian toll. But Moscow has verbally, at least, thrown its lot in against Israel. It didn't even condemn the Hamas kidnapping, torture, uh, including rape and murder of Israeli civilians. Instead, what Russian narratives have emphasized is the culpability of the United States which Moscow argues is responsible because it fueled tensions in the region over the course of years and decades. Aside from everything else, this implies Moscow has in this way effectively broken, um, for how long and to what extent you know, we can discuss, but it has broken its relationship with Israel, which was previously a good enough relationship that Israel was quite notably not providing any military support to Ukraine. Russia's efforts to use this war to strengthen ties with countries in the Middle East builds to a large extent on relationships that existed well before October 7th. But if its closest ties in the region are with Iran, which has provided drones to Russia for its war in Ukraine, Moscow is hoping that frustration with the United States and European countries will work in its favor elsewhere too. And in the first week of December, Putin made a personal visit to the region talking to leaders in Saudi Arabia and the United Arab Emirates. So all of this is well in line with Russia's foreign policy concept issued on March 31st of this past year, which put forward a vision of Russia countering and breaking what it terms as uh, U.S. hegemony. Throughout the world, Moscow has sought to tap into anti-colonial sentiment, however ahistorical it's doing so may seem and global frustration with what appear to many to be double standards between, say, how the regional North Atlantic countries treat the war in Europe and the way they treat the war in the Middle East. But if this war between Israel and Hamas has been a boon to the Kremlin, it also holds risks for Russia. For instance, if it escalates into war between Israel and Iran and draws in the United States, Russia would face a difficult situation.
To talk about all of this, we're pleased to welcome Hannah Notter to the show. Hannah is the director for Eurasia at the James Martin Centre for Non-Proliferation Studies and is a senior associate in the Europe, Russia and Eurasia programme at the Centre for Strategic and International Studies. Her research focuses on Russia's relations with Africa, Asia, Latin America and in particular the Middle East. She also researches Russia's arms control and non-proliferation in the Middle East more broadly. Hannah, welcome to War and Peace. Hello and thank you so much for having me. So Hannah, has the war between Israel and Hamas benefited Russia? And if so, how? Olya, I think two months into this war, we can definitely say that the war has benefited. You noted some of those benefits in, in, in your remarks already. Um, but let me sort of take a step back and say how I see them. The Hamas attack in Israel occurred on October 7th, which happens to be Vladimir Putin's birthday. And some observers were quick to point out that this is the perfect birthday gift for Putin, even though there's been no clear evidence emerging that Russia was uh, involved in instigating Hamas, supporting Hamas directly to carry out this heinous attack. But certainly, I think Russia has benefited because this war has come at a time when the Ukrainian counteroffensive was petering out and it was clear that it hadn't yielded the results that had been desired by the Ukrainian side. And it came at a time when there was increasing uncertainty in the United States regarding continued military support for Ukraine. So quite a few factors that led us to uh, believe that the Russians weren't looking so bad on the Ukrainian battlefield and going into 2024 as, as one might have hoped. And what this war in Gaza has done is to further draw attention, media attention, but also political attention away from the war in Ukraine and towards the Middle East. And the Russians have used that quite savvily to their benefit. If we look at uh, posturing by Russian diplomats on the UN Security Council, where they have adopted quite a humanist position, drawing attention to civilian suffering in Gaza, which you might argue is a very cynical position to take, given that Russia continues to bomb uh, Ukrainian civilian infrastructure pretty much every day with Iranian drones. But that diversion of attention has to some extent happened. I think we can also agree that this crisis in Gaza has consumed political attention, especially by the admin Biden administration, really at the highest level of government. And so all of this I think is benefiting Russia because Russia's global foreign policy strategy against the backdrop of this war in Ukraine, which is the highest foreign policy priority for Russia, is I think to cultivate pressure points and intersecting problems for Western policy globally, because overall that wears the West down. Of course, in this instance, the crisis in Gaza also allows Russia to score points in the court of global public opinion because Russia finds itself in alignment with much of the Middle East and the broader global South on the Palestinian issue. So these are some of the benefits. We can also talk about the derailment of normalization between Israel and Saudi Arabia, which is a project that the Russians never liked to start with. And these are some of the finer details, perhaps. But overall, yes, Russia has benefited from this war. So everybody was talking, or everybody in my 
bubble was talking about this, Russia's benefit, the benefits to Russia when the conflict began. I'm not hearing this as much now. Is it that the benefits haven't panned out, do you think, the way that Russia expected? Is that my bubble's off? Is it that, you know, it's all kind of just the same thing going on? What do you think? I think this might be a function of Russia not actually having to do very much to benefit in a sort of intangible or diffuse way. What we're not seeing right now is Russia being very active. Russian diplomacy is mostly playing out on the UN Security Council on this issue. What we don't see is Foreign Minister Lavrov or President Vladimir Putin being engaged at the highest level to defuse this crisis. So we're actually seeing Russia sort of sitting on the sidelines of this situation. And my point to you is that the benefits that they're reaping are not very tangible or can be easily pinpointed. It is a matter of, again, further media attention and political attention being diverted away from Ukraine and perceptions of Western double standards and hypocrisy getting more purchase even than they did before. I mean, we heard this from quarters in the global South even prior to October 7th, that the West was seen as hypocritical, as excessively focused on Ukraine, um, not prioritizing other urgent issues. And I think what we're now seeing is just um, an an augmentation of, of those kinds of sentiments. And it's not that the Russians have to do very much for those perceptions to set in. Russia can just watch this sort of crisis sort of unfold and, and, and the gains for it in the war in Ukraine are more diffuse than, than really easily to be pinpointed. There is a possibility that the war in Gaza could escalate. It could become more of a regional war which could draw in the West even even further. Does Is this something that Russia wants or is it trying to prevent that from happening? Also considering that it's got significant involvement in Syria and Syria potentially being one of the fronts where escalation could take place. Yeah, my own take on this question is that the Russians want, don't want to see a larger regional war. I think where Russian foreign policy in, in the Middle East sits most comfortably is this image of small fires, small fires that keep the West preoccupied, that generate tension, that consume bandwidth and resources, but not a large fire because Russia wouldn't have the military bandwidth or the resources to step in and safeguard its own interests. You mentioned Syria, where the Russians continue to have a presence. Um, they have you know, withdrawn some presence against the backdrop of the war in Ukraine, but not very much. And for the last few years, they, they had, um, you know, a, a fairly limited presence in Syria because we didn't see active combat in Syria on a large scale. What you would see is the occasional flare up in northeast Syria or the Russians bombing in Idlib province, which remains outside of uh, the control of the Syrian government, but no large scale fighting. And Russia's presence was sort of catered to that. So if uh, the war between Israel and Iran was to escalate to a regional level and, for instance, draw in Hezbollah in Lebanon, it's not a far stretch to see Syria becoming engulfed in such a war. And Syria has already become hotter over the last two months um, with intensified Israeli airstrikes against Iranian-backed actors in Syria. Um, and so um, the Russians, I don't think, want this situation to see sort of further blowing up because they would then have to make some very hard choices. Would Russia really want to activate its air defenses 
against the Israel, Israeli Air Force in Syria, for instance. I'm not so sure that that's where the Russians want to go. I also don't think that they want to have a direct escalation with the Americans, which would then be quite certain to happen. What you saw over the last year was Russia stepping up its harassment of U.S. forces in northeast Syria. That's true. Um, I saw that more or I read that more as coercive signaling as Russia showing NATO and the Americans, look, we can still poke you in theaters far away from from NATO's eastern uh, front in the Middle East. We can cause problems there. Uh, Just watch. But Russia doesn't actually want to risk a military confrontation with the United States in the Middle East. And so I I think that the Russians don't want this small fire to escalate into a large fire. Whether Russia actually has any leverage over the course of events to prevent this from happening, that's a totally different question. There might be contacts between Russia and Iran to that effect in the background. That certainly wouldn't surprise me because Russian-Iranian contacts are very continuous and going on at at a very high level. But again, I think the further course of events is largely out of the hands of the Russians right now. You've just mentioned Iran, and it would be interesting to hear from you. How do you see Russia's ties with Iran playing into how Moscow positions itself in the war in Gaza? Yeah, look, I think there's no question to me uh, about the fact that the Russian-Iranian relationship has changed qualitatively since Russia's invasion of Ukraine in February of last year. I wouldn't call it a, a strategic alliance yet, but I think it's a it's a very robust partnership. Um, you see this uh, growing alignment um in the military defense relationship where the Russians have uh, received combat drones from Iran since last summer. Um, We are now entering a second winter where those systems are being deployed against Ukraine's civilian infrastructure. But it's not just drones. It's also other military support. It's the fact that the Iranians are even supporting Russia in indigenizing some of that drone production in the Tatarstan region. Russia is probably stepping up its own support for Iran. Um, there's talk about s- certain systems like fighter jets and, and, and attack helicopters. Uh, we don't know what will be delivered, but we also know that there is probably stuff going on in the background, like uh, Russian engineers uh, talking to the Iranians about their missile program, for instance. Um, there's mutual learning regarding sanctions evasion techniques and how you adapt dual use goods. All of that is, is probably going on in the background. I think the Iranians are very satisfied with the trajectory of that relationship and what they're getting from the Russians. Um, Iran, um, becoming part of the expanded BRICS, uh, the Shanghai Cooperation Organization. There is a sentiment that things that weren't happening for years, even though there was a lot of talk about it, are now moving uh, much, much faster. And I think um, I, I want to perhaps point to two particular implications of this enhanced Russian-Iranian relationship that I think are particularly noteworthy for us uh, in Europe and perhaps also the United States. Um, and one is that I think Russia has really stopped being a partner for Western countries when it comes to dealing with the Iranian nuclear dossier. Now, before the full-scale invasion of Ukraine, 
Russia was a partner for the West. It negotiated the JCPOA. Um, when the Trump administration walked away from that agreement in 2018, the Russians were quite active in diplomatic efforts to try to get us back into that deal. And really up to the invasion of Ukraine, quite constructive in that engagement, sometimes criticizing the Iranians, putting pressure on the Iranians. We see all of that falling away after February of last year. I see a Russia that is becoming much more defensive of Iran regarding the nuclear dossier. And I think nuclear non-proliferation or how to deal with the Iranian nuclear problem has really become deprioritized in Russia's uh, foreign policy. That, so that is something that worries me. Now, it doesn't mean um, that I think the Russians want Iran to have the nuclear bomb, but certainly that Russia feels very comfortable with what we call a near nuclear Iran or a nuclear threshold Iran. And the second area that worries me is this, I think, general further Russian drift into the Iranian camp that we will see against the backdrop of the war in Gaza. Because the United States has come in in full support of Israel with um, military deployments to the eastern Mediterranean, I think inevitably Russia will be leaning towards the Iranian camp in whatever, uh, you know, in the diplomacy that is going to shake out on this crisis. It's to me not inconceivable that we might see enhanced Russian support for Iranian-backed um, non-state actors, Hamas, the Houthis, Hezbollah, uh, in the upcoming period. Um, I'm, I'm not saying that Russia will have sort of full-fledged support for these actors because in the past, Russia's ties with these actors were more ad hoc, more political. I don't think that there was any evidence of any systematic or institutionalized security assistance. But again, I don't think that Russia will want to see American diplomacy in defusing this crisis succeed, because the main prism through which Russia now formulates its foreign policy on the Middle East is this broader confrontation with the West over Ukraine. That's become the organizing principle. And so against that backdrop, I think a, a further drift into what we call the axis of resistance camp is certainly not unlikely. So is this why it's comfortable jettisoning the relationship with Netanyahu's Israel, which had been quite good? Or was it never actually all that important and it was just kind of handy to have, but you know, not that relevant or, you know, what do you think is the logic there or is there any? Olya, I, th I think it's a great question. I mean, my own take on this is that this relationship was not unimportant to Putin. He personally cultivated it from the early 2000s. From what we know, he has personal chemistry with Bibi Netanyahu. There's been a not insignificant trade relationship between the two sides. There's a large Russian-speaking diaspora in Israel, if you go to places like Haifa or elsewhere. And the deconfliction between the Russian and Israeli militaries in Syria, I think, was important to both sides and important enough to the Israelis that they were cautious um, uh, navigating the war in Ukraine and deciding not to provide lethal aid to, to uh, Ukraine. Um, so I don't think that Russia uh, never cared about this relationship to start with. I just think that we're in a different ballgame now and that Russia realized that this crisis in Gaza, the attack and the ensuing military operation would present a very opportune moment to score points globally, given how this issue is being perceived in the broader Middle East, but not just the Middle East, but also parts of the global South, and a very opportune moment to combine the war in Gaza, 
end the war in Ukraine into this broader Russian meta-narrative about U.S. colonialism. You know, Russia um, uh, is, is essentially arguing that just as the Gazans have lived under occupation of Israel, which is the extension of U.S. hegemony in the Middle East, just in that same manner, Ukrainians in the Donbass have been living under the occupation of the Kiev regime since 2014, um, supported and by this Kiev Nazi regime, again, supported by the West. These are the talking points that we're hearing from Russian diplomats at the UN Security Council. And so uh, I think that Russia just calculated that if uh, if it angers Israel and if there's a, a considerable cooling in the relationship with Israel as a cost to incur for that stance, then so be it. The gains are greater for Russia. I don't think that the Russians want a full rupture with Israel, and I don't believe that they think this is going to happen And uh, uh, because they understand that Israel also still needs to navigate cautiously vis-a-vis -vis Russia. The Russian military in Syria isn't going to go anywhere. And we do see... Uh, continued, you know, even at a low level, continued uh, contacts. Um, this is the Israeli ambassador regularly meeting with Deputy Foreign Minister Bagdanov in Moscow. We just had the second phone call between Putin and, and Bibi Netanyahu. So they clearly don't want a full rupture in ties. But yes, it's become deprioritized because of the larger game that Russia is playing. We saw last week, I think it was a couple of weeks ago, Putin visiting the Middle East, a very rare visit to meet with the leaders of Saudi Arabia and the leaders of the UAE. It was also earlier this week um, at the Doha Forum where Lavrov, I think he was supposed to come, but he, but he joined virtually and, and spoke. So obviously there's a bit of a romancing of, of, of Middle Eastern and Gulf leaders. So particularly referring back to this Putin trip, I mean, why now and what is the significance of it? And is it working? Are they, is the romance working? Yeah, look, I think uh, this visit to the UAE and Saudi pursued some very concrete objectives. Um, I think it came at a very opportune moment for Putin because Western observers have claimed over the last year that on the back of the ICC arrest warrant against him, he's isolated internationally, he can't travel, he's a pariah. So for Putin to go to China earlier this year, to travel a bit more in, in, in uh, countries neighboring Russia, Central Asia, and now going to the Gulf, you know, on, on a trip with considerable fanfare, considering how he was being received in Abu Dhabi, it's just perfect for Putin to signal sort of where he's at in this confrontation with the West and that he is, he thinks he's coming out on top. Russia is not isolated internationally. Russia likes to now use this term global majority to argue that it is actually aligned with the global majority and that the West and Ukraine, which uh, isolate Russia and which have sanctioned Russia, are the, the minority. When it comes to the, the details of, of the visit, there was some uh, noise and some suggestions uh, sort of to the effect that this might have something to do with the situation in Gaza, that Putin might go there to discuss this crisis in Gaza with those leaders. Uh, um, I'm sure this was discussed, but I don't think that it was the main topic on the agenda. I think the main topic in both instances 
was uh, Russia's economic relationship with the Gulf. Um, the UAE, if we look at the Arab world, it's the most important trade partner for Russia. We have a lot of Russian money having flown to the UAE after the invasion of, of, of Ukraine, a lot of Russian assets parked there. There's coordination with both the UAE and Saudi Arabia in the OPEC plus format regarding oil output and hence market prices for oil, which is very important to both sides. So I think those were the main topics that were being discussed. There was then also an exchange of views uh, on Ukraine and, and on Gaza, and, and the Gulf states have played some role. They've carved out some diplomatic niche for themselves, even on Ukraine, regarding prisoner exchanges and the Qataris, regarding the issue of Ukrainian children um, uh, that were taken to Russia, being reunited with their families. Um, so those are the, the topics that I think were discussed. And Putin actually, in his big press conference and call-in show earlier this week, also indicated that there was a conversation about, about Gaza in Gulf capitals and that Russia finds itself in alignment with the Arab world on this issue. He also commended the Turkish president Erdogan for his efforts. So there is, I think there is this messaging here that Russia is very much aligned with, with much of the Middle East on this issue. But I really do think that economic relations, investments and the oil markets were probably dominating the agenda in, in the UAE and in Saudi Arabia. But again, you know, what you describe is, I mean, it's Russia joining in with the opinion of Middle Eastern states. It's not Russia leading. Is this adequate for these countries to actually look to Russia? And do they see it as an alignment or do they see it as, you know, that's great? There are some economic benefits to dealing with Russia, just as there always were. And if the Russians want to join their voices to ours on this issue, great, but we don't see a huge difference. Olya, I think that these countries are not really looking towards Russia when it comes to the war in Gaza and diplomacy to resolve the issue. Um, I was recently in, in Iraq, in, in, in Kurdistan, at a regional forum where there were uh, interlocutors from different Arab countries participating and the Gaza situation was front and center. And one of the most notable takeaways from me from that conference was how little anyone talked about Russia being a factor in resolving this crisis and how notwithstanding all criticism uh, against the Biden administration for taking a, a very overtly pro-Israel stance, that's how it's perceived in the region, there's still this perception that the Americans at the end of the day are the only game in town when it comes to diplomacy to resolve this crisis. So I don't think the Arab states of the Persian Gulf are looking towards Russia as a major factor in resolving this crisis, but they still want to do business with Russia. They have not seen the war in Ukraine as this this um, this defining moment for a rules-based international order in the way that Western capitals have uh, framed it. Um they um, have a, ha had a different perception of this war and they have not been willing to cut their ties with Russia, which are about the pursuit of very narrow and specific interests, such as economic relations, such as coordination in the OPEC plus format because of the war in Ukraine. So this is just more business as usual for these Gulf uh, capitals vis-a-vis -vis Russia. Fundamentally, Olya, I think what you see in the region is a worldview that sees the United States and the West in, in a long-term decline and the U.S. as having been less engaged in the region for or a long time already now. 
um, and an emergent multipolar world in which there's other power centers that one has to reckon with. And in this changing world, these countries in the Middle East, and I think it applies to almost all the countries in the Middle East, perhaps with the exception of Syria and Iran, which are firmly in the pro-Russian camp, but other countries don't want to put all their eggs in one basket, the US or Western basket. They want to have the benefit to also deal with Russia and China. And so they continue to deal with the Russians, again, in pursuit of specific interests. But I don't think that they look towards Russia as a major factor regarding this crisis. I, I will say one last thing, which is that I think on the Arab street, what we call the Arab street, the pro-Palestinian posturing by Russia does resonate. Um, I think people ultimately feel that Russia is, is, is our guy on the UN Security Council. Among the big ones out there, the Russians are the ones at this premier forum of international diplomacy, the UN Security Council, that will stand in for the Palestinians. And that is seen as important. Um, but I think in terms of the actual diplomacy that is going to shake out, I don't think that there's a sense that the Russians will be a major factor. Um, I think Russia wants to have a seat at the table. So I, I started by arguing that Russia benefits from a slow boil of inconclusive war in Gaza, because that's the best that can happen to Russia in terms of Ukraine. I think that is true, but I also think that if and when diplomacy starts to seriously take shape, the Russians don't want to be sidelined. They want to be at the table. And Sergei Lavrov actually said earlier this week, in response to media questions, he sort of bemoaned the American monopolization of what's going on. And he sort of said, the Americans are now trying to secretly and all by themselves come up with a plan uh, to do this. And this will be impossible. There has to be an international conference involving the P5 of the UN Security Council and all the Arab states and the OIC and the GCC, like a big international fest. And Russia has to be at the table. So they, they don't like to not be a factor in this. In contrast to Russia's pro-Palestinian stance in the, the war in Gaza, Ukraine has been um, very openly supportive of Israel. Do you think this has significantly undermined Kiev's chances to rally more non-Western, especially Middle Eastern support for its defence against Russia? It's a difficult question to which I can only sort of speak Anecdotally, I haven't sort of probed this or, or properly researched this. I will start by saying that I understand why Kiev framed the situation in Gaza or what happened on October 7th in the way that it did, sort of tying these two theaters together, saying what we have is two democracies that are under threat by an, an evil, evil actor, you know, in Ukraine's case, Russia waging a war of aggression, and in Israel's case, Hamas, a, 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 you know, a terrorist uh, group, um, tie these two things together, I think, especially vis-a-vis -vis an American domestic audience, in order to ensure that there's sustained support, not just for Israel, but also for Ukraine at this crucial moment in the war. So I understand where the Ukrainians have been coming from. Um, how it's gone down in uh, the broader Middle East or Global South, again, I can only uh, speculate, but given how Israel and Israel's operation in Gaza, where according to some claims over 18,000 have, have now died and there's no end in sight to the fighting, given how this issue has, has resonated, uh, I think there's a lot of criticism to those countries uh, internationally 
that have adopted a very clear pro pro Israel stance or are, are perceived as such. I mean, my own country, Germany, also falls in, into that that category. Um, again, I can only speak to it anecdotally, but I, I certainly don't think that it has helped Kiev's um, Kiev's drive to garner support for its own position in the broader global global South. So we're running we're running tight on time, um, and I wanted to ask you. You've worked a lot on prospects of arms control in the Middle East. Um, are there any now, given the current situation? Well, yeah, my, my bottom line answer to you at this point, and we're still sort of early into this war and how things are going to shake out and then shape uh, proliferation calculations by various actors, and hence the prospects also for arms control and non-proliferation, we're still early days. So I think what we say at this point needs to be highly speculative. Um, but I think the bottom line, the net effect will be negative. Um, in terms of Iran and its nuclear program and the JCPOA, we were already in a pretty bad place before October 7th. Things weren't moving at all. Now, the big question that folks are now asking is whether the Iranian nuclear calculus will change as a result of how this war is going to shake out. Will the Iranians go further? Will they actually decide to weaponize? I think it'll depend a lot on uh, the extent to which Hamas is decimated, what it means for other Iranian-backed uh, actors in the region. I don't think we can give a firm answer to this question. I, I, for one, would say there's no indications right now that Iran would decide that it needs to go beyond threshold status and weaponize. But that will be one of the most important factors, I think. That will then determine what other actors will do, whether we see other proliferation pressures. For the moment, the Israeli-Saudi talks are on hold. And of course, Saudi getting a civilian nuclear program was going to be an important part of that diplomatic choreography, though both sides also signal that they're willing to resume those talks. But again, we need to see. I think this will also determine where the Saudis are going to move. We do have a process under UN auspices towards a WMD-free zone in the Middle East, which has met several times. But it is a process, Olya, in which the Israelis are not at the table uh, it's a process that the Americans don't support or at, are at the table as an observer because of Israel's stance. And I would just pose to you that that process is becoming an even harder lift. It's been it's been happening. Um, the, the conference has met once a year in November. Um, but there was always, I think, a, a sentiment among the participating regional states that if this process is moving forward and yielding some s- substantive progress, Eventually, Israel will come to the table. That was the hope. And I think, and this is purely my hunch, uh, Israel talking about its own nuclear capabilities, which it has never officially admitted to, that prospect has become now even even more remote, given the trauma of October 7th and what it has done to the sense of security of the Israeli state. Um, So overall, I think... um, there's some elements here, some dynamics that we need to see shake out before we can make some firm assumptions, but it certainly hasn't become any easier after October 7th. Thank you. Um, that's really an interesting uh, and uh, like so many things, a bleak point to end it on. Hannah, thank you so much for joining us uh, for, I found, a fascinating conversation. Thank you so much for having me. 
for more from Hannah, you can follow her on Twitter. She's at Hannah Nutter. We also encourage you to check out her recent piece in Foreign Policy, Where Does Russia Stand on the Israel-Hamas War? You can also read her New York, New York Times op-ed, Putin is getting what he wants. To read more of Crisis Group's work on the war between Israel and Hamas and other wars in the Middle East and other wars elsewhere, check out our website, www.crisisgroup.org. You can also follow Crisis Group and us on social media. On Twitter, Crisis Group is at Crisis Group. Elissa is at Elissa Jobson. I'm not on Twitter anymore, but I am on Blue Sky and Mastodon as at Olya Olukur. We'd like to thank our producer, Alex Fogerski, and our coordinator, Heiko Schaub. But our biggest thanks, as always, goes out to you, our listeners. If you have any thoughts or suggestions, do email us at podcasts at crisisgroup.org. You can also leave us a review wherever you get your podcasts. And to ensure that you don't miss an episode, don't forget to subscribe to War and Peace, if you haven't already. You can find us on all the main podcast platforms. So this has been our last episode of 2023, but we're going to be back in mid-January and are looking forward to talking to you again then. Until then, however, goodbye. Goodbye.